Kids can be dismissed now. Uh, the little ones, third grade and below, if you would like to dismiss them. We have a time of children's worship prepared in the treehouse that may, um, may be more age appropriate. If you've got a second or third grader or something like that that's attentive, you don't have to dismiss them. But they're going out to that little extra building out there that's called the treehouse. And um, that's where you can pick them up this morning. And parents, if you're here for the first time, you'd like to step out there and kind of take a look at what's going on out there, you're welcome to that. I know that's kind of weird to send your kids away maybe for the first time. You'll see them again. Trust me, we don't want to keep them. <laughs> We're going to start with prayer here in just a moment. Let's pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that you'll be enjoyed. Lord, we pray that uh, by um, the work of the Holy Spirit, that you will just give us a divine attentiveness, that you'll give me a divine clarity that I don't have in my head right now, but it'll find its way to my mouth, and that it'll speak to hearts, and that a people will be more grounded People will be more captivated with Christ. People will be more amazed by grace. Shepherds will be more urgent in shepherding families. Lord, we pray in these next few minutes for a uh, kingdom sort of outcome that takes place in the hearts of men and finds purchase there and expression in Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday afternoon and at a breakfast table and while we sit and while we go by the way. I beg for that in these next few minutes, Lord. I, also, in these, as we're gathering and about to feast on the Word together, Lord, I want to pray for Greg Fields and Tracy. Pray for a good friend and a brother shepherding a people at Westminster. Lord, I pray that You are blessing him in his study and that he is being undone and amazed by grace, he's being undone by a gospel that's almost scandalous, and by grace that reaches so low. I pray that that is spilling over onto Tracy and the kids. I pray that his first and primary ministry is at home, and his children get dibs, and his wife. Lord, I pray that in that, that there's ample resources for Westminster, and that a people are being built, a captivated, worshipful people a salty, bright, aromatic people that we can serve alongside. Lord, I pray that you'll guard us, that you'll guard Westminster, and you'll guard the, guard the other Christian churches in this community from ever having a spirit of competition, but that we can truly cheer for each other and pray for each other and beg for great things for each other for your glory. Lord, I know that Greg is feasting and that he's preaching the word. And Lord, I beg for people to engage it and to grow and for you to be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Please. We're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 1. What we're doing this morning is this is our third installment of a little series of sermons. We're taking a little break from John, the book of John. And just in these next few weeks, we're really going to engage the family. 
And this will have to do with shepherds. It will have to do with uh, really every person that's part of a family. Even if you're here as a single, you may be in the process of being equipped for a family that you may shepherd in the future. Or you may be part of a family, they're just not physically part of this church body. So this has application to all of us, I think, in some ways. This is the third installment of this series that we're calling the Dib Series, where we realize that the family has dibs, not L3, not 3M, not IBM, not AT&T, not every other acronym we can think of, but the family has dibs. And this morning, we're going to go on a journey together, looking at three generations of people, three generations of Israelites. The first two generations, I'll share with you who they are, because I want you to assume the the position of one of those generations. The first generation is the wilderness generation. I'll introduce you to them as we go. The second generation is the conquest generation. That's you this morning. You'll need to climb into that persona as we, or that identity as we climb into this message. The book of Deuteronomy is a wonderful book. The context of the book is that the nation of Israel is really standing between two places. They're standing between the wilderness where they've been and they're standing between the promised land where they're going. And from the vantage point of the context of the book of Deuteronomy, they can consider what's behind them, not just geographically, which would be Egypt and the wilderness, but also what's in store, which would be Canaan, the promised land, the land that God promised Abram. Moses recounts to them in the first few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, their wilderness journey, beginning at what Deuteronomy calls Mount Horeb. You might be familiar with Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy, when he says Horeb, he's speaking of Sinai. It's just another name for Mount Sinai. What I want you to do to climb into this story is I want your family to imagine sitting in the foothills of Mount Nebo, Mount Nebo was in the, the area, the country of Moab, in the area that's just about to go into the promised land. And I want you to imagine that you're a family sitting on the foothills listening to Moses as he preached and communicated the book of Deuteronomy. So while we're sitting in pews, we need to kind of make a transition and imagine us sitting our, on the hillside listening to Moses. If you do that today in these next few minutes, you'll leave with treasure you'll leave with treasure. I'm going to speak to you as that people, that conquest generation. God led you out of Egypt as teenagers. You'll need to be teenagers, otherwise you won't survive seeing the promised land. So I want you to be teenagers in these next few minutes. You saw the plagues unfold. You saw frogs thick as thieves. You saw fleas or some sort of gnats. You saw locusts. You saw hail drop and actually crush livestock. You saw the other livestock that somehow survived the hail dropping stone cold dead in the fields. You saw crops crushed. You saw a darkness that could be felt. And then you as a teenager also had the opportunity to hear the wind of the destroyer at midnight overhead during the Passover. And you heard the screams of Egypt when they woke up and found their eldest boys in their cribs or in their beds dead. You were led out at midnight, and you saw the Red Sea part. You walked across on dry land as a teenager. Port of giants being there, and surely they're going to kill our children, and our children will be their prey. 
Yet two studs, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, No, sir. Let's go in it. Let's go get it. Let's go in there and take the land. He's delivered this land and their people into our hands. We can and will whip them. But our parents, this generation wilderness, listened to the ten pansies. And we all went to our tents with our parents, teenagers. Listen to what happened in our tents. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26 says, Yet you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord to go get it. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He's brought us up out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. You heard your parents murmuring and saying those very words in your tents. And then, you weren't the only ones that heard those words. God heard those words. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35, it says, God heard those words and He swore. He said, not one of these men of this evil generation, that's the wilderness generation, not any one of these men shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except for Caleb, he's one of the studs. Caleb will see it. And then there's Joshua, who stands before you. He'll see it too. And as for your little ones, the ones you said who would become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, it means they didn't know that you chickened out. They didn't understand the gravity that you did not trust the Lord and go into the land and apprehend it and take it. Those who did not know, did not have a knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. This is speaking of us, the conquest generation, the teenagers, those 19 and younger. But as for you, you 20-year-olds and older, you turn and journey into the wilderness, listen to this, in the direction of the Red Sea. I don't know how you're wired, but here's how I'm wired. When our family loads up in a car and goes on a trip, it doesn't matter if it's an hour out or five minutes out. If we've forgotten something and we have to go back, it literally eats me alive. <laughs> it, there's something inside me that dies every time we have to do that, even if it's five minutes. And if I miss a turn on the interstate and I miss a turn that we're supposed to go on, it eats me up inside to know that we're having to backtrack. And this is what the nation of Israel was in for. Because you didn't go into the land... Now turn back toward the Red Sea and head back where you came from. <laughs> so they load up, and then there's 38 to 40 years or so of wandering from that point because of what your parents did. Now it's at the end of this wilderness experience, 38 years later or so, that we sit as the conquest generation, we sit as new families in the hill country of Mount Nebo. We sit here in the foothills listening to Moses he's, as he reminds us of our covenant with God. He charges us, this new generation that saw the blood-slathered doors, that heard the wind of the destroyer, that crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea, that saw Sinai quake, that are now going to cross over the Jordan on dry ground into the promised land. Moses shares with us and reminds us our covenant with God. He charges us with faithfulness in the promised land. But before we go, Moses shares one of the most important chapters in our Bible. Turn to chapter 6. In Deuteronomy. <clears throat> 
If someone were to ask us, what are the people of God to be about? Chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy would capture a large part of the answer. It is that important. Let's climb into it. Verse 1. Remember, you've got grass under your feet. You're sitting in the hill country of Mount Nebo area. You're going to be going over in the promised land in a few minutes. A few hours. It's going to take Moses some time to get through the rest of Deuteronomy. Listen to what he says in chapter 6 of verse 1. He says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, to teach you, conquest generation, those of you who were teenagers when blood slathered doors protected you from the wind of the destroyer. These are the words that God commanded me, Moses, to communicate and teach to you. For two reasons, that you may do these things in the land to which you're going over to possess and that you may fear the Lord your God. For those two reasons, he's communicating these truths. God commanded, Moses taught, so that you may do and so that you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son by keeping all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. There's a connection here between a healthy fear of the Lord and commandment. The fear of the Lord could be described as a healthy appreciation for and a healthy attention to His ways and His plans and His design. It's not a fear like, ooh, I want to run from God and not be around Him. It's a fear like I'm tuning in, like E.F. Hutton is speaking, and I'm going to listen. I'm going to be so attentive that I will be fearful of missing a single word. That's the fear of the Lord that He's talking about right here. And that is developed alongside the attention to His commands. Without the command, and listen, without the teaching, if Moses had not taught this to the people, they could not then go do. The teaching is that important. But without the command and without the teaching, there is no appreciation, there is no attention, there is no fear of the Lord, and hence there will be no conquering and no possession of the land. Conquest generation. Man, you're going to be tuned in. I think I would be tuned in. The people of God are taught so that we will fear the Lord generation after generation after generation. Verse 3. Here's what Moses said. Here's the word from the Lord to this people. Here's the word word from the Lord to these families as we're sitting in the foothills around Mount Nebo. God says to us, He says, Hear therefore... Oh, Israel, my mom, oftentimes when I'm talking to, their phone, to her on the phone, when she really wants me to listen up, she says, listen here. It's almost kind of rude, but it gets my attention. Listen here, oh, Israel. Listen here and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Here, listen up, oh, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you were to ask a Jew their favorite, most important verse in the Bible, it would be that one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. They call it the Shema. They actually wear it in little boxes on their heads called phylacteries. It's that important to many of them. And they hang it on their doorposts from a verse that we're about to look at. What this means is not so much 
singularly only a message about monotheism, that God is just one God. Here's what this means. It means He is the one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, means that He is the one true God. It means that He is unique. How many psalms have you heard where the psalmist writes, Who is like you, O God? That's embracing this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's none like you. You are unique. You are the one true God. It's also a picture that He is wholeness. The Lord our God is one. He's not a fraction. He's not part of Godness. He's the fullness of Godness. He is the wholeness. He's the full kit. So when He speaks, this whole, one, true, unique God, when He speaks, there's no contradiction. When He promises, it will come to pass. When He warns, there's no refuge from His judgment. This God is one. And here's what He says next to us on the hillside. He says, families of God, listen, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This one, this true, this unique, this whole God commands the people of God to love Him with wholeness and integrity. There's no fractions when it comes to a love for God by the people of God. We're to love Him with wholeness. The appropriate response to the wholeness of God is all of our heart, all of our being and soul, and all of our might. It's the only appropriate response. And you've got to realize this is commandment. This isn't suggestion. We may have a difficult understanding, a difficult Time with understanding love as commandment. But that's the reason. The reason behind that is because our view of love has to do with boy meets girl. You just can't imagine boy meeting girl and showing up and saying, I'm commanding you to love me. Some of you may have tried that. I tried that with Christy for a while. It just did not work. Of course, I'm being facetious. Godward love is altogether different from boy meets girl sort of love. Godward love is not based on emotional feelings. It's not based on what you think ought to be, what you feel like ought to be. It's based on decision. Godward love is different. And this sort of love, if anything, should teach us much on wifeward love and on husbandward love. It's not based on feelings. You can't fall out of love when it's decision love because you have determined, you have decided, I will love this person. That's the way our love is to be Godward. That's the commandment. That's an appropriate response to his uniqueness. His people are to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. That takes in the whole person. And not only takes in the whole person, it takes in everything that that whole person does. Here's how it breaks down. The word for heart in the Hebrew also means mind. So it takes in your mind. The word for soul also means being. It takes in your, your, your being, this thing that you can't see that's really who you are. And then all of your might takes in everything that you do. So this is beautiful picture of the journey of love, that it starts in the mind with the feasting of His Word through the taught and preached Word that we are engaging the truth The revelation of God with our minds, that's where love begins. It begins in the mind, and then it migrates to the soul via meditation, via conversation, via 
enjoyment and connection with His Word, and then it's expressed at the hand through the things that you do. And there will be expression if there's love. If there's no love, that's what James said. Show me your faith by your works. It doesn't make it love. It's just a byproduct of true love. There will be doing. This is the full package. Love with your mind. Let it migrate to your, to your, your being. And that it will find purchase in the things that you do. And then in verse 6 he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. These words, I already told you what heart means. Heart means mind. These words will be on your mind. So you're to be mindful of what God has said. This should have special importance for you as shepherds. You who are leading a family, you've got to realize, shepherds, that you are to be mindful of God's word. For these words to be on your mind is not the picture that those words visit your mind periodically. It means you're supposed to be consumed with these words. You're to be captivated with these words. You're to be there often when your wife's talking to you. Oh, I'm sorry, babe. I was thinking about some scripture that I read today. That seemed pretty weird. That's what's characteristic of the people of God. That the shepherd has these things on our hearts. And then the next result is, in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, first of all, you can't do any of those things unless they're on your heart. That's why that, that, that on your heart thing's got to happen first. If you've got nothing on your heart, you've got nothing to share. That may be part of the reason the conversation of God things are not taking place in the home. <laughs> you may have no fuel for conversation. But let's say that you do have the fuel. Let's say you do have the goods, shepherds. Let's say you are engaging the Lord and those words are on your heart. Then the next thing that happens is they are taught to your children. And not just taught. I'm going to introduce you to a new word. If you don't like new words, then you just have to get over here. Because if we don't, can't find a new word, we'll make one up. But this morning, this is a real word I didn't make up. It's a real word that just, it's an English word that captures the original language best. And it's the word inculcate. I hear y'all using that word frequently in just passing conversation, so I, I know that you all know what that means. The word inculcate is what we should be doing to our children. And here's some synonyms for inculcate. Beat. Some of you are going, I like the sound of that. <laughs> it means in teaching. We are beating something into their head. Here's another synonym. Hammer. Here's another one, say again and again and again. Here's another one, repeat. We are to inculcate these things into our children. We are to hammer them into our children. We are to beat them into their heads. We're to say it over and over and over and over again. We're to repeat these teachings. It's not a passing thing. If it's on your heart, it's to be inculcated into your children. Not periodically, not once a month or once a year, and not when things are really bad. But daily, hourly, at breakfast, at lunch, at dinner, when they come home from school, when they're on the way, that's inculcating. And you, the leaders of these families, the shepherds, you who are sitting on this hillside hearing this word, you are to inculcate your children with God's plan, with His design, and with His word. And when are you to do that? It tells us right here. He gives us four different time frames. They may kind of 
melt onto each other, but let's consider them for a moment. First of all, when you sit in your house, let's talk about sitting in our house. I was thinking about occasions to sit in my house, and we sit around a dinner table, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We sit in the den and talk sometimes. We sit to read. We sit to study. But I was thinking about in my home, some other things that take place in our home when we're sitting is we do occasionally sit to watch TV, like I bet most of you do. As I was considering this charge to the people of God to talk about God, to inculcate the truths about God into the lives of our children while we sit in our house, here's some some figures that I came up with. In the average American home, there's more than four hours worth of TV watched every day. National average now is about four and a half hours. In the average American home, or let, me, let me translate that. What that amounts to is two months a year of straight TV. Hello. Two months a year of straight television. The number of hours per day that the TV is on in an average American home. This is one figure I found among two. I found six hours and 47 minutes. I found another one that said over eight hours that the TV is just going. It's just spewing all day long in our houses. We can walk by and catch little snippets of it all day long. The percentage of Americans that regularly watch television while eating is 66%. It's hard to have a conversation while that's going on. While we're eating. The number of minutes per week that parents spend in meaningful conversation with their children, this will bum you out. Three and a half minutes. That's not per day. I'm talking meaningful conversation. That's per week. Now contrast that to the TV figures. The number of minutes per week that the average child watches television, 1,680. Who's shepherding our children when the figures are like that? TV, NBC, that don't make a very good daddy, I don't think. The number of murders seen on TV by the time an average child finishes elementary school is 8,000. Hello. That's what we're doing most of the time when we're sitting in, in our homes, and our home is no different. We don't watch that volume of TV, but we do watch some TV. Something else that... They were charged with doing was inculcating their children when they sit in their homes and when they walk by the way. I was thinking about our versions, not walking, because we don't walk with our kids very much. We drive by the way. That's our version, where we climb in the family van or wagon. And now we drive with DVD players and wireless headsets that will occupy the children while we, the parents, try and endure the journey. (laughs) The coolest cars now are the ones that give you as much distance between the kids and you. Whether it's real geographical, physical distance, or whether it's just you can put them in another world through the entertainment systems that are now present in our cars. We have one in ours. Then, of course, there's cell phone conversations that mommy and daddy can have while we drive so that children are just completely disengaged passengers. So, so far in our context, we're going to have a difficult time with the inculcating while we sit in our homes and when we walk by the way because there's just other stuff going on. But here's the third one. Maybe this one will work. When we lie down. I was thinking about in our home, we kind of lie down in phases. We get the kids down about 7.30 to 8.30 time frame and then Christy and I kind of catch our breath. And then I may watch TV 
for a little while after Christy goes to bed, and we kind of go to bed in phases, nary engaging a moment, potentially. That's Southern for never. <laughs> nary. Some of you going, oh, who's that? <laughs> never engaging each other. And I was surprised to hear from some close friends recently that they can't go to, to bed without the TV on. So then the whole TV thing creeps into even when we lie down. We've got to have TV blaring before we can even go to sleep. So lying down doesn't work very good either to inculcate. Maybe it'll work when we rise. But the problem is, in our context, we've got school buses that depart early. We've got weekday schedules that begin early. We've got long commutes that begin at 4, 5, 6 a.m. to get everyone out the door and ready for school and ready for the day. So that really doesn't work for us either. So it doesn't seem like our schedule and our lifestyle really agrees with this sort of inculcation. So what have we done? We've resorted to leaning on the staff of our local church. Or maybe the teachers. Or maybe the children's ministry or the youth ministry. We go looking for a great children's ministry and a great youth ministry that can make up for our inability to inculcate the next generation. And here's the reality. You want to know who the real children's ministry is that your children are getting? Look in the mirror in the morning. That's their children's ministry. You want to know who their primary youth ministry is? Look in the mirror. You're them. You can find the best in the world, but what they're getting is what they get daily. That's what will shape them. That's what will change them. The problem is that the next generation needs the same thing this generation right here needed. This unborn generation, or maybe this row of kids is sitting next to us on the hillside in Nebo, as we're now adults, and we're husband and wife, and we're considering what we're supposed to be doing. What they need is daily, by the way, teaching by parents with something on their hearts, and you can't contract that out. You can't hire that out. The southern version, you can't farm that out. It's your job. Shepherds. And families. You can find the best children's ministry in the world. You can find the best youth ministry in the world. But they cannot do your job. Because inculcating takes place every day, all day long. So what are we to do? We've got this crazy context that we're in. We can either continue to lean heavy on the church staff or the teachers to do what we're supposed to do. Or here's a novel idea. We can make some changes. Some serious schedule changes. Who's going to be our God? Circumstance? Ah, oh, man, I got to pay bills. Man, I got to commute 800 miles. Who's going to be our God? Commuting? Man, we got to go by God's design. We've got to make some changes. We can modify our schedules to prioritize what the people of God are to be about. Now, I know this would be very hard. I know, man, it'll be harder for some of you than others. It'll be hard for everybody. But the people of God are not to be driven by circumstance. We're to be different. We're to be set apart. We're to be driven by God's design, whatever the cost, to our pocketbook, our bank account, our schedule. That's what's supposed to drive our schedule, God's design. I think God must have anticipated great difficulty and distraction with this because he presented the picture of Diligent teaching. The picture of inculcating like it involves work. <laughs> Beating and hammering involves work. 
It involves effort. It involves commitment. It involves sacrifice. And here's the beauty. When we do these things, there are tremendous blessings in store. Conquest generation. In verse 8, he says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. He just said these things you're supposed to share with your children and when you're supposed to share with your children. And he says you're supposed to bind these things as a sign on your hand that they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's what I was talking about, those little boxes that have the Scripture in them, phylacteries. They found those in the Dead Sea Scroll areas. So even early on, people started, well, it must mean to write it down, put it in a little box. This doesn't mean that. This means Psalms 1-1 picture where the, the blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates both day and night. That's what this means. It doesn't mean put it in a little box. It means put it right here in terms of the things that are important to you. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build... Now, you'd be getting excited about this on this hillside in Nebo today. That you're going to move into cities that you did not build? You've been living in Egypt. You spent a few years in Egypt. Maybe you broke a few rocks of your own. And then you lived in the desert in huts, tents, hooches, tabernacles, little mini tabernacles. You'd be excited about moving into a city where somebody else built the house. You're going to move into houses full of good things that you did not fill. Get excited about this conquest generation. We're about to go into the promised land. You're going to drink from cisterns you did not dig. And you're going to eat and drink from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. And you will eat and be full. Man, you can be excited about this conquest generation. Moses shared the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. And then toward the end of it, he said these words. This is just before he dies. You think it's not important that we teach children. You think this is not a crit critical ingredient. Here's what he says in chapter 32. He says, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do the, all the words of this law. Chapter 32, verse 47. For these words are no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Moses dies on Nebo. And sure enough, as promised, Joshua and Caleb lead us. All of those who were 19 years or younger when the grumbling and murmuring took place. Now adults, he leads us across the Jordan on dry land to enter the land God promised to Abraham, the land of Canaan, with cities that we didn't build. We can drink from cisterns we didn't dig. We can move into houses we didn't build. Joshua and Caleb and the people, our generation, this conquest generation, take Jericho. Here's how the story goes. Turn over. Just a page or so, a few pages, to Joshua chapter 24. You've crossed the Jordan now. And here's what happens in chapter 24, verse 11. 
And you, fellow conquest generation people, we went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against us, and also against the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and God gave them up over to our hand, and we spanked every last one of them. Beat them like yard dogs. And God says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you the land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Man, there it is. Joshua reminds them of the conquest that's already taken place. And then here's his famous charge to them where he charges the nation of Israel to choose you this day whom you'll serve. And then over in verse 28, it says, Joshua sent the people away. That's us. Every man with his little family behind him to his inheritance. So we go off to our little corner of the promised land to do what God instructed us to do through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Sounds like things are great. Sounds like things are going to be perfect from here on. In fact, the next page over there in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 7. The people, this is us, the conquest generation. We serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. That's us. We saw the whole thing. We heard the wind of the destroyer. We walked across the Red Sea. We saw Sinai quake. We walked across the Jordan. We saw Jericho fall. We've seen all the great work that the Lord has done for Israel. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And then they buried him. And then the rest of us, the conquest generation, we were also gathered to our fathers in verse 10. But listen to this. And then there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done done this is the generation that i can tell you about in the beginning there's the wilderness generation those are the ones who murmured and died in the wilderness all but caleb and joshua there's the conquest generation that's us we've been faithful we served the lord we whipped we fit the battle of jericho we were participating in some cool things and then we move off to our inheritance and then here's the next generation after us these are the grandkids of those who heard the wind of the destroyer This is generation I for ignorant. Generation I, ignorant, rose up after this generation and they did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. This is generation I, ignorant, for uninformed and untaught. This generation is just a breath away from the eyewitness accounts of some of the most incredible events in history. And they know nothing about them. Because mommy and daddy were too doggone busy. seems that while Generation Conquest was busy fighting and moving and setting up households and hanging their pictures over the mantle and getting the curtains just right and drawing their boundary lines, they were too busy to teach and inculcate their children. So they got a bunch of children that don't know anything about the Lord. Ignorant to the whole thing. A breath away from eyewitness accounts. apparently they were too busy for diligent teaching when they rose, when they lie down, when they go by the way, and when they're sitting down. Can you imagine that? 
generation I's granddaddy. The ignorant generation's granddaddies slathered doorposts in Egypt. And they know nothing about it. Because daddy was too busy. Their parents had seen all that had taken place in Egypt. All that had taken place in the wilderness. And they fit the battle of Jericho. But they must have had too much going on to talk with their kids while they sat. Maybe they had long commutes and they had to get a jump on the day. Maybe they had to get off and make the money and earn the pay to pay the bills. Or maybe they were just too tired after all that fitting. Maybe they were too busy drinking from the cisterns they didn't dig. Maybe they were too busy to teach their children as they rose or they lie down. Maybe they just told them, say, go to bed. I don't have time to invest in you or tomorrow. It seemed that this, this conquest generation, us, we're too busy to invest in the next generation of the people of God. And let me tell you something, there were grave consequences for that. Grave consequences. It's in the next verse, in verse 11. It says, And the people of Israel, this is the third generation, this is generation I, ignorant, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the anger of the Lord. This generation that was a stone's throw from the blood slatherers are now, and I'm going to use the word because God used it, whores. They're whores. Whoring with their neighbors, worshiping foreign gods, participating in pagan practices, and marrying foreign women. And I want to ask you the question. Some of you who are parents or who are considering parents, some of you are grandparents, it's not too late. Consider this question. Is that what you want for your children? Do you want your children to reap the anger of the Lord? Look at how that ended. And they provoked the anger of the Lord. Do you want your children because of your faithlessness, because you couldn't have a dialogue in the home, because you were afraid? Maybe you wanted to, to farm it out to the pros. Maybe the guys that went to seminary could talk to my kids, because I'm ill-equipped for that. Baloney. Do you want our children to reap the anger of the Lord? Are you okay with leaving them nothing of value? Is our affection for our children so weak that we could leave them so little? That's the first question. Are we okay with leaving this for our children? Leaving them to fend for themselves? Trusting and knowing that if we don't open our mouths, they'll be whores. Second question is, is that what you want for your Lord? Let's ask it in the horizontal direction. Is that okay with you leaving that for your children? Let's ask the question, is that okay what you're going to leave God? You're going to leave the next generation of the people of God, your children, you're going to leave Him so little to leave Him a little distracted, shallow group of people that are really just whores. I have to ask the question when I'm considering my little row of kids and those who are off in the nursery right now, my kids that bear the name McGraw, am I okay with the McGraws presenting to God when it, once he calls me home, say that happens first, and the rest of the family presents to God, am I okay with them presenting without deep roots? Because I was too busy. 
Am I okay with that? Are you okay with him getting a worldly people who marry the wives of the godless neighbors? Are you okay with him inheriting a whore? That's what we give him if we are not faithful. We're one generation from an apostate church. If you think I'm lying to you, take a journey to Scotland. Take a journey to Germany. You walk around and see the most beautiful church buildings you've ever seen, and they're empty. They're beautiful, but they're empty. There is no church. They're just a bunch of buildings. That's what's in store for the people of God here. If something doesn't change. So what does this mean for us here in 2008? Let's step out of that Nebo foothills context and step here to 2008. Let's step right in where we are and consider what generation we are. We considered the wilderness generation, the conquest generation, the, the failure of the conquest generation to inculcate, and the result being con, uh, generation I, ignorant generation. Let's consider what our generation is. I really try to put a handle on this, get a handle on this, put a name on it. I think we're the activity generation. Generation A, that's us. The activity generation, for us, the faithfulness paradigm. Think about this. For us, the faithfulness paradigm is more about attendance and activity than it is anything else. For us, in our context, it's about going to church. You hear it in our language. You think I'm beating this because it doesn't matter? You think it doesn't matter? It matters because it shows up. We are the activity generation. You find it in our language where we say, let's go to church. Or we drive by a church building and we say, there's the church. That's not a church, that's the building. You think that's a small deal, but it shows up. What this does in the activity generation is it makes the God things, the things, the pictures of true faithfulness, it turns them into a place you go and a thing you do. But if the church is made just an activity... It works for us because then we can fit it into our, our busy schedule. Because nothing really happens on Sunday mornings and the faith is reduced to an activity. If we're about conquest, then maybe we can cordon off a little time and we can farm out our responsibility to the pros. If the faith is an activity, then we can potentially have people with clean noses and perfect attendance who have no affection for the living God. but they never miss a Sunday. If faith is an activity, it's on Sunday and maybe Wednesday for the truly faithful. But there's no conflict with worldliness because that takes place on Friday night. For young people, you may not be able to understand why your young kids may be drawn to pot and sex on Friday night. It's because there's no conflict because church is on Sunday morning. If church is an activity, there's no conflict. It's just a different activity. If faith is an activity, I ask you to consider, people of God, what will become of the next generation? Will they adhere? You think they will? Trends tell us right now they won't, and they're not. I say, no, I pass. If church is an activity, they'll likely say what most are saying right now, I pass. I got plenty of activities going. Man, I can, my, my, my schedule's so busy. 
I don't need another activity. If what takes place at the activity, listen to this, shepherds, parents, if what takes place, the words that are shared, the things that are considered in Bible study, the dialogue that takes place, if that doesn't reconcile with what is really taking place on Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday, the young people will say, I I pass because I'm not up for hypocrisy. Because it doesn't reconcile with what I'm seeing from my parents and in my family and in my home and in the conversation and daily dialogue of life. With what's going on Sunday, I pass. No thanks. I don't need another activity. I don't need hypocrisy. If church is just a place you go, then they'll say, I, I can opt out of that because i got plenty of places to go. Besides, if it's just a place to go, maybe I'll just go next week. <laughs> Ain't no big deal. I think we can learn a lot from Scotland and Germany. We can realize what's in store if something doesn't change. Our kids, the ones we carry in our wombs, the ones that are in our nurseries, the ones that will be begotten soon, eventually. There's something in the water here. Everybody's pregnant or considering it. They will see the absence of God things in Daddy's talk on Tuesday. So they'll even and eventually recognize the hypocrisy of Daddy's activity on Sunday. And I'm thinking that they won't adhere. They'll pass. No thanks. They'll see mommy's actions on Wednesday. I say, that doesn't reconcile with what I hear mommy saying on Sunday. Mommy's got on a different pair of shoes or Sunday shoes. It's not what she's wearing the rest of the week. And then my parents, you know, they kind of throw token offerings at something they want me to be dedicated to. Why should I? They send a message to me loud and clear that it's just an activity. Here's the issue, though. If Generation A, the activity generation, that's us. That's most of our context, how we were raised. I adore. I'm thankful and grateful for how I was raised. But if I'm going to be honest, I think church was an activity. If Generation A, by the grace and mercy of God, can see activity for what it is, then we can beg God to change our Tuesday and invade our Thursday and our breakfast table and our backyard and our cubicle and then we can beg him to arrest us with his words that we can actually consider a sermon after 12 on Sunday? How about that? It's crazy. I know, it's crazy. Novel, radical. We can actually engage a Sunday school lesson that's been taught so that it will dwell on our hearts and then migrate to our mouths and then it will eventually season our homes and saturate our conversation. And then while we sit, while we go by the way, when we rise and when we lie down, this could potentially change the next generation. It's generation question mark right now. Kids sitting in here, generation question mark. But it could be the next generation I, and not generation ignorant, but generation identity. The next generation could say, man, we're the people of God. We don't go to church. We are the church. That's just a building. We are the people of God engaging the truths about God, engaging the God of the Word all day long, every day. These things are on our hearts. I hear them in my daddy's speech. I see them in my mommy's actions. It's going on at home. It could potentially be generation identity. Then doing evil in the sight of the Lord will not resonate with the daily conversation 
and the daily movement of the people of God. But this has got to happen at home. You can have some incredible pros doing some incredible things on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but it's your job, shepherds. It is your charge to inculcate. A shepherd who does not escort the everyday talk of God into his home and into his Tuesday morning and into his Thursday night and into his Saturday afternoon cannot hope to impact the heart of the next generation with the gospel of Christ. That's how it happens. I realize this could potentially be a very confrontational message. It's not me. Because I'm on the receiving end of the confrontation as well. I'm convicted. If you're convicted with me, we've got to do something about it. See, conviction without actually doing something is called remorse. And that lasts for maybe an afternoon. But conviction with change is called repentance. The people of God have got to repent. It's got to be led out by men that lead the way. Take your hands out of your spiritual pockets, pick up your Bible, take leadership of your family and say, we're going to make some changes in our family. I'm going to take a different job. That doesn't mean that I'm gone 12 hours a day. I'm going to make a little bit less money. We're going to live in a smaller house. We're going to drive a smaller car, an older car. Things are going to change for us, honey, kids, because you're tomorrow's church. And I've got the charge of inculcating. I can't inculcate if I don't see you all day. Or if our minds are being sucked out by hours of television. I didn't even talk about video games. Hello. It is our charge And our responsibility, if you are convicted and you want to repent with me, and I want it badly, then things have got to change. We need to repent from searching for identity in job, car, home, clothes, stuff, while we hope to pacify him with perfect attendance at church. We need to cast ourselves on his mercy to ground us in the identity of being his people. As I prepared this message this morning, I thought to myself, there's such a potential for expressing some sort of works-based salvation. It's not about salvation. It's about being the people that we are. I'm making an assumption that's probably not safe because I don't know that all of you are walking with the Lord. But I'm hoping that I'm equipping the saints for worship and wonder, that I'm speaking to the people of God. And the people of God have got to be the people of God. I don't want to communicate some sort of works-based salvation. This is all about us. You may not realize that. You may think that I've taken some obscure story that really has nothing to do with us. Things are different for us here in the New Testament. You need to realize things are the same. For we too had someone who went on a journey in the wilderness for us, and his name was Jesus. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. You ever wonder why he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting? The temptations that he went through are the same temptations that Israel went through. And where Israel failed, our Christ did not. And just like Israel had to cross through the Jordan, fellow conquest generation guys, we did it this morning, still got Jordan water on us. Jesus also crossed through the Jordan through baptism. 
And then he earned the conquest. He knocked down Jericho. He fit the battle of Jericho in a cross. He's won the promised land for us. And while we live in this fallen world, you may feel like we're in wilderness, and we are in some ways, but the people of God, through this abundant life in Christ, we're in the promised land now. And we communicate and perpetuate the faith in the hearts of our children with our mouths from this adoration, this enjoyment of this Christ and this gospel that's on our hearts. That's what we're to be about. This is our story. It's not an obscure, ancient picture. We sat on that hillside that day. It's what we're to be about. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that we are not all show and no go. Lord, I pray that we're not just a bunch of talk, hot wind. But I pray that as we consider these truths and consider what happened to this third generation because of a bunch of people that kept their mouths shut, that we will realize that we have got to speak to our children about the glories and the mercies of the gospel. Lord, I pray for the shepherds in this body, mostly men, but some single women or spiritually single women who are serving as shepherds in their home. Lord, I pray that you will arrest them with the gospel, that what has taken place today and what has taken place in their Bible studies, what takes place on Wednesday nights and in the past weeks will invade their lives and find purchase on their hearts. I pray that we can abide in the word like true disciples are supposed to. And I pray that that will find expression. It will migrate to, the heart, to our, our being. And that it will migrate, move its way to our hands and our effort and our might. And it will find its way to our mouth as we speak about these glories to our children. And Lord, I pray for tomorrow's church that will not be activity church. I pray for our children and our families that will just arrest that language of going to church and put it in the place that it should go, and that we will be the people of God that have an identity with this connection. Lord, I pray that the result of that will be a faithful people, and faithful generations, and faithful offspring that will bring glory to your name. I pray that the result will be salty, bright, and aromatic families that are enjoying Christ out loud, that you are using as instruments of glory. Lord, I pray for these kids that are in wombs, that are in nurseries, that are sitting beside us, that are maybe in our laps right now. I pray that they will get the best, and not for their sake, but for your sake. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship.